Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Pod Strickland. I'm your host, Shwini Poo, and this is episode 171. We are all relaxing and enjoying uh, this Nixless weekend and week that's up, that's that's here. Uh, we, we no longer have to deal with this team every day, so that's nice. Uh, but I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Stacy. That's at StacyPan89. Stacy, how are you doing? I'm Perel. Happy Saturday. Yes, happy Saturday. Uh, a nice Saturday morning. There's a little snow falling where I am, so that's always fun. But we are joined by a special guest, uh, a longtime friend of the pod. and But it hasn't been on in a little bit. Uh, his name is Cranjus McBasketball. It's at Tim underscore NBA. Um, Tim, how are you doing? I mean, I was enjoying my nice Saturday. Woke <laughs> up, had some baked oats. I come on, say good morning, and 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 I'm greeted with you know in, the invocation of David Fisdale's name. Uh, I've been enjoying not watching the Lakers, and will continue to enjoy not watching the Lakers until I think Friday. Uh, but but you know, look at us. I've been on this podcast like four or five times, and I feel like every time I'm on, either you know both teams are great, or one team's good, the other team stinks. Now both teams stink. Yeah, and and you know, just look at us. <laughs> Who would have thought? Yeah, right. Um, all right. Well, look. Before we get started, I do have to mention that the Strickland has a Patreon. Uh, you can subscribe to it. There's a number of different options. There's a six dollar tier that gets you access to Pod Strickland every Friday that I do with Prez, and also access to the mailbag I do every other week with Jeremy and Drew. You also get access to the Strickland Discord where we commiserate uh, about the Knicks and we share our miseries and very little joys that we get out of this team. Uh, (laughs) There's also a $9 tier that gets you access to weekly articles by Matthew Miranda and Jack Huntley, two of the best Knicks writers, dare I say basketball writers, dare I even say just writers out there. Uh, You also get access to my solo podcast, Trick and Roll, where you can listen to me yell about the Knicks even more than I already do. Uh, there are further tiers beyond that, a $15 tier, $30 tier, $50 tier, and a $100 tier. Um, those all come with additional benefits, such as merchandise discounts, listening in on watch parties, listening on pod recordings, and potentially even hosting a pod. But whether you choose to subscribe or not, your support is appreciated. None of this would be possible without you. And without further ado, let's get into two shitty basketball teams. Um, you know, look, I've talked so much about the Knicks. Let's put off the Knicks for a little bit. Let's talk a little bit about the Lakers. I've seen a ton of debate about Frank Vogel. And I got, I'll be completely honest, I have not watched a ton of the Lakers this year. Um, but whenever I have, I am always impressed by their flexibility on defense, but it seems like whatever issues that most of the criticisms about Vogel are tend to be about the offense. Um, And I'm just curious if that's accurate or what your read is on the situation, Tim. 
Yeah, so I think a lot of the criticism comes down to rotations and then the offense. I think those are the easiest things to point at and say, like, this doesn't make sense. Why are we running a pickup basketball offense? Nobody else does that. Why are we doing this? Or, like, why, Frank Vogel, are you starting DeAndre Jordan and Avery Bradley for, you know, 20, 30, 40 games? Like, no one else wants them. Why are they able to start for us? Like, DeAndre Jordan played with his best friends in Brooklyn. They ran a coach out of town to keep him in the rotation two seasons ago. And then last season, his best friends were like, nah, this guy's got to go. He's so bad. And, and he started for the Lakers for a big stretch of time. Uh, so, but then also the defense, which is supposed to be the thing that Frank Vogel really gives you also hasn't been all that great. And part of it is the the roster doesn't have the same caliber of defenders it did in the past. But another piece of it is, and this is harder to notice unless you're really like digging in and a total degenerate and like scouting opposing teams in the regular season, which which sometimes I do. Uh, so if and, you're you. Yeah, so me. So <laughs> me and few others are able to really comment <laughs> on this. Uh, and for stretches of the season, I wasn't. And I was able to just be blissfully ignorant and be like, yeah, I mean – Drop coverage is probably the best coverage to run against every team in the league in the first half. You know, even though our roster doesn't match it, maybe they're bad against it. But then I started tracking it. And over the past couple weeks, game after game after game, the Lakers were starting in like running out like freaking drop coverage with Carmelo Anthony and just shit that makes no sense for our roster. (laughs) And then against the teams we're playing against, you know, uh, the teams are trying to defend. We weren't running the ball screen coverages that stop their offense. I think the Knicks game is a great example. First half, we get vanilla defense, Frank Vogel, just running what he runs every single game, no matter who the opponent is in the first half. And having scouted that game, having looked at the data, having been able to see some of the second spectrum data, switching against the Knicks was the way to slow them down. And it also happens to match what the the Lakers roster looks like. And it took them a whole half of, you know, getting their heads beaten in to realize that that is, is the right move. So just that stubbornness, and inability. You mentioned flexibility. They've gotten a little bit better at it the past like two games. Um, and in second halves of games, they'll be flexible. But they're starting way too many games with really dumb starting lineups mm. that have no spacing and have non-NBA players in them. And they're starting every game with the same defense, no matter who they're facing just about. And, and that is just absolutely agonizing to me. So I, I think from afar, it's really easy to look at the Lakers situation and try to see like who's to blame. Is it the ownership, the front office, the, the injuries, the coaching staff? And it's been a little bit of everything. Like the, the owners with free agency last year and the trades, you know, tr- looking at trades this year, they've really handicapped what the front office is allowed to do because they do not want to pay any more money because they're poor. Uh, the front office has made some dumb decisions and the coaching staff has like it's more X's and O's stuff and rotation stuff, but like there's a lot of points they've been leaving out on the table, offense and defense and the rotations. So that's agonizing. And then on top of that, you've got like LeBron missed 17 games, AD's missed 21 games, and he's mm-hmm. going to miss a lot more. Uh, Russ has un- only missed one game, uh, and then the other two guys that. <laughs> So, so those are your three, your two stars, your one Russell Westbrook, and then the only other two guys that are paid more than the minimum on this team are THT, who has regressed. He's gotten much worse this year, and he also missed 16 games. And then Kendrick Nunn, who hasn't played a single minute of the season. Every other player on the roster is on a minimum contract. Is, so is it's just THT like... still untouchable in Harden trades? <laughs> yep, yep. So it's... 
It's been it's been unfortunate. Avery Bradley somehow started forty two games. He is his offensive impact this year is half a point worse than Trey Young's defensive impact this year, which should Jesus. speak to like how much he just has the Lakers offense like running in mud. It's it's ridiculous. Uh, I want to talk about David Fisdale in a bit, but I've I've ranted enough. I think the to to you know close it all out. The issue is everything, and Frank Vogel's part of that, and. I think a lot of Laker fans are looking forward to seeing who the new coaching staff will be next season, but not anticipating any move for the rest of this year. Um, it's pretty funny because almost everything you were talking about in terms of how games are started, the issues with the starting lineup, why are we starting these players and playing them so many minutes? Why are we never adjusting our scheme? I literally thought you were talking about the Knicks. Um, it sounded a lot like the Knicks anyway. Because the Knicks have had a lot of the same issues that the Lakers have had. Um, obviously, we do not have a LeBron or an AD. Um, and we haven't had those injury issues necessarily to key players. Um, though I guess Rose is a really key player for this team. So mm-hmm. missing him for as long as we've missed him has been an issue. But I will say this. I do think, and Stacey, you can you know take it from here. But I think in some ways, um, Rose getting injured might be a blessing in disguise in terms of speeding up probably a decision they were going to need to make on the coaching staff, speeding up that timeline. Um, because I think with if Rose is healthy, you know, you just look at this recent West Coast trip, right? If Rose is healthy, they probably are able to see out that Lakers game they probably are able to definitely win the Portland game. They're probably able to beat fucking OKC. They're probably able to hold on to a 28-point lead against Brooklyn. They're probably able to maybe even hold on to a double-digit lead against Utah that they had without Gobert in that game. Um, and you mentioned how the Lakers switched everything, uh, and that really, that, that's that been a huge problem. For the two things that have really fucked the Knicks over this entire year and speaks to kind of my issues with tips tactically uh, zone defense, which should not be a problem for any NBA team, really. Well, especially over a long stretch. shooting, we added. Yeah, right? yeah, and then obviously switch switch schemes because he just doesn't seem to have any pivots beyond run a ball screen and try and get a switch and then just have that guy ISO. Um, I think Rose actually helps with that a lot because he's probably the best, the Knicks' best ISO player. Um, but yeah, I mean that's just kind of like my very. Uh, depressed thought this morning is that in some ways the Rose injury laid bare some of the tactical and coaching issues that Tibbs shortcomings that he has and that maybe in the long run um, that may have been a good thing also because if the Knicks are better we're probably still sitting here talking about like well he's got to keep playing fucking Taj 79 minutes a night he's got to keep playing like fucking Kemba no matter what 20 minutes like I'm happy we're not having those conversations anymore because Losing more games has led to a point where I think 90% of the fan base is like, all right, like we got to just, this is stupid. Like just play these young guys, see what we got and let's move on. It's interesting. You mentioned that the Rose injury may be expediting that, that process there with Tibbs because on the Lakers side, it's almost been the opposite where their injuries have led to just a total lack of accountability and, Anytime anything goes wrong, it's all, oh, well, we haven't been healthy. We haven't been healthy. You know, no one's asking direct questions of like, all right, hey, you know, why haven't you run a play in, in 16 quarters or things like that? Um, 
Or like, <laughs> can you please explain to us why Carmelo Anthony's playing drop coverage for 35 minutes a night? And, and like, they're not asking those more pointed questions that can't just, you know, be answered. Oh, well, you know, we're injured. Some, you know, guys are still getting their legs under them. We haven't had time to build chemistry. All of those things that are kind of BS coaching answers, but it's, it's interesting how, I don't know, at least I see the injury situation for LA elongating or, or, you know, giving more excuses for the coaching staff to be able to say, oh, well, you know, we haven't gotten a fair shot. Yeah. And I think some of those have applied for uh, Tibbs as well. Um, So Rose missing out is a big impact. Um, Kemba being washed is an impact. And then like, I mean, to the extent, you know, other players have regressed. Like Randall spent most of this. You can question the effort. You can maybe argue Tibbs should have held him accountable. But a lot of Randall's regression has been missing open shots. Um, you know, he's actually a shot profile has improved. I think since last year, uh, he's taking fewer of those contested middies and all that. But until recently, he hasn't. Um, you know, he hasn't. Um, he, he struggled um, just to hit open shots, and he struggled with tempo. Um, but I mean, there's definitely feels like a lot of similarities between the two teams besides like, obviously there's a talent disparity, but, um, you know, both teams like to really run the offense through a, um, through a, a front court player, right? So obviously Randall isn't on the bronze level, but he's the main hub for the Knicks. Um, and in both cases, it seems like they're playing a point guard who in theory should be able to do things like get to the rim and create, but in the Knicks case, Kemba's washed and then. I don't know what Westbrook is really doing. All I know is when I watched that Lakers Knicks game with my Lakers friend, friend every time Westbrook got the ball, he sighed very audibly. Um, <laughs> so that's re- that's representative. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, but one thing that's interesting: there's been a big debate in Knicks land about you know, quote unquote, needing a true point guard, right? So since we run so much of the offense through Randall and RJ Barrett when he hasn't been injured because Tibbs decided to melt his knees. Um, you know, with 45 minutes a game, um, you know, there's an argument that, you know, if you look at lineup stats, if you look at the performance, someone like quickly, um, you know, who, who's more of a shooter, plays with pace, doesn't really have to be a traditional point guard um, or even the kind of point guard that just gets downhill a lot is a better fit. And I'm curious how much you think that might be the case with Malik Monk maybe getting more time there versus obviously Westbrook, but even guys like, they don't have Rondo, but um, you know some of the, some of the other like older, more traditional point guards who feel like they should be playing there, and Monk isn't really a point guard, but might be a better fit for that lineup. Yeah, it's because there's no offensive scheme for seemingly half of the games. It puts so much more pressure on the players to be able to just make something happen. And Malik Monk has been pretty good at that in terms of getting his own shot and, and being hot. He has he has a self-creation ability a little bit. And then off ball, he's been really good, you know, running off of screens whenever they run them or just like catching and shooting, spotting up. But the Lakers don't really have that true playmaker on this team outside of LeBron and then Russ. Like there's a huge drop off from there. THT is someone who teams are starting to realize he – can't quite see the floor all the way and so his you know main thing is getting to the room and finishing at the rim and his finishing at the room has been much worse this year because teams are like loading up the paint against him and realizing he's not going to punish him for it with his passing and so 
he can't be that guy. Like Austin Reeves was was a, a lead ball handler at Oklahoma, but he's an undrafted rookie. Like that's just not part of the scope of his role, and they shouldn't be asking him to do that. Uh, like they they just don't have those dudes. Uh, Monk isn't a real playmaker. They can make some simple reads and. I think they're good enough that if you add some structure around it and instead of just saying, all right, make it happen, you know, we don't know where the other, you know, nine players on the court are going to be, just go figure it out. That's so much different from here's, you know, a set play, here's the one defender you will need to read and you're here, you're, you're like two options, make a decision. That's so much easier than just to pick up basketball offense and the Lakers, because they don't have that structure, it makes guys look so much worse. It made Dennis Schroeder look so much worse last season. Um, and I don't think he's that great, but it just, they're not setting guys well up to succeed. So whenever LeBron isn't playing, it's just a nightmare and it's just, all right, well, I guess we'll spam 80 post-ups, I guess. I don't know. Um, they have a bunch of dudes who like defenses go under ball screens against. So they've had to completely change how they run ball screens or how often they use ball screens because normal pick and roll setups just don't work well for them. Uh, so there are just so many like built in challenges with certain players that you have to almost work around rather than just being guys that you can throw into any lineup. And it, it really makes it challenging for this team, especially when, for most of the season, Frank Vogel was also starting Dwight Howard or DeAndre Jordan. So you've got them, who's a non-shooter, Russ, who's a non-shooter. THT was in the starting lineup a bit. He's not really a good three-point shooter. Um, and then, like, it's it's just so difficult to do anything playing pickup basketball when you have three non-shooters on the court at the same time. So it's just, there's so much, they're always fighting... Uh, an opponent uh, opposing defense who has the like upper ground and and it's really really challenging it really takes just great individual scoring performances and it results in a lot of highlight plays i suppose but it's not sustainable like productive process but to that point right if especially with the starting lineup um you know if if lebron is going to be handling most of the playmaking um doesn't that kind of especially for someone like monk it should take the pressure off him. So at least in those lineups where LeBron's playing, is it fair to say it makes a lot more sense to pair LeBron with Monk as opposed to one of the non-shooting options? Yeah, I think that makes sense. And we saw the Lakers during their title run. They, they went through that entire season without a true point guard uh, that really played with LeBron. So like Rondo wasn't good in the regular season. He had a couple good games in the postseason that helped them help the team. But it was LeBron and then starting KCP, who is by no means a point guard or a playmaker, or starting Avery Bradley, who same deal there. Um, so they've done that before. What the situation was going into last offseason was LeBron had that ankle injury, wasn't himself, and brainstorming, you know, where do we go from here? How do we pivot from here? And actually, actually two years ago, uh, after the title you know, after they won the title, they said, we need more playmaking. We need LeBron to be able to handle less of that burden. And that's why they made that Danny Green trade, brought in Dennis Schroeder. Uh, they didn't seem to be bothered by the fact that he was a garbage three-point shooter every single season of his career up until the, the year they were going after him. Um, so that didn't work out well, but they tried to add playmaking then and then had no structure around it. And Schroeder wasn't a true point guard, a true ball handler, a true playmaker, and it didn't work. And then this, you know, this season... This past offseason, they basically had the same conversation saying, we need to add a nut, we need to add a true playmaker. Let's go after a star instead. So they traded in all of their chips for Russell Westbrook, thinking he'd be able to be that guy. And we've seen that work to varying degrees, but it's only when all of the circumstances are right. It's when there's spacing on the court, it's when the defense is good, so they're able to get out in the break. 
It's when Russ just happens to be, you know, not in the mood to shoot, pull up mid-range jumpers. So like we've seen his playmaking work. Uh, and and I I have been a proponent of staggering him and LeBron as much as possible this year. And that's when the Lakers are at their best. Because if Russ is in a lineup with LeBron, with AD, he's the third, maybe the fourth banana offensively in that group. And that means he's either like spacing the floor, which he's not good at, or like setting screens for guys, which really isn't value at having him versus someone else doing that. And then defensively, he's such a negative that it it's just it doesn't make sense. He needs to be running bench lineups or he's the guy able to be him. And along those same lines, that means in the starting groups, or as much as possible with LeBron, you should have more nominal point guards or more shooting guards just playing that position. Um, and then the challenge then becomes the Lakers either have shooters or defenders, and they don't really have guys that do both other than like LeBron and like Austin Reeves. Everyone else is either like THT can defend, can't space the floor. Monk can shoot, can't defend. And so it's it's really a pick your poison up and down a lineup. And it really makes for some challenging rotation decisions. Um I about THT. Um you said he's had a obviously he's had a down year for sure. Um mm-hmm. do you think that's just like so I mean, look. I guess here's a parallel. Quickly, he's had a down year. Okay, he's not shooting anywhere near as well as he did last year. Um, he's trying to figure out like the balance. Like he's played a lot more point guard. I think this year. I know the minutes, at least on Basketball Reference, they say he played more point guard last year. But like, I think there's probably some weird defensive designation going on there. Um, I think he's played a lot more on ball this year uh, over the course of the season. He struggled to kind of maintain his scoring ability or not scoring efficiency, I should say, um, while he has added responsibility to create for others. So we've seen a little bit of a drop off. There's been a lot of people freaking out about it. I particularly don't think it's a problem. I think that's just like what needs to happen with young players. Like, you know, there's a lot of young guards who, if you're not one of these guys who just comes into the league and you're already like kind of elite with so many attributes, you're going to struggle and you have to go through that struggle to come out the other end as, you know, a Kyle Lowry or something like that, right? Um, do you think that with THT, that maybe this is just part of that process for him as a young player? Or are you at a point where you're watching when you're like, he's probably just not that good? He's just really limited. He like he can get to the rim and finish at the rim, uh, or at least in theory, that's what he's supposed to be doing. He hasn't finished well through him at all this year. He can't space the floor whatsoever. You can't really run ball screens with him because they'll just go under everything. He has no uh, – his his vision isn't very good. He tries to force too much, and he turns the ball over at really high rates as a passer. And it it's just – I think he can be a good player, and I think he has NBA skills. But until he's like a passable shooter, it's so hard for what he is good at to really be – utilized and and the Lakers value him or in the past at least valued him as this like future budding star kind of guy but you can't do that if you're also not a playmaker and not a not a shooter you you have to have one of those two skills to go along with the good finishing otherwise you're I mean you're a one-trick pony and when the defense knows there's only one trick coming it's so much easier to defend that like if if you only have to sit on a good fastball you're going to be much better against it than against a pitcher that has two or three or four good pitches that you have to respect. And right now defenses only have to respect one thing from THT. So he's still like 21, plenty of time. He's still a pretty good defender. Uh, He's crazy long. His length is absurd. Um, He's 
you know, decent on ball. He's rotating a bit better this year than he did last year. He's a huge defensive playmaker, but he still has huge weaknesses there. And I just, I think you have to adjust how you view him and what he's really capable of turning into. Cause right now you need to be betting on a non-shooter guard after multiple years in the league of being a non-shooter, suddenly developing a good three-point shot. And that just doesn't frequently happen. You're, you're not like it could happen, but you're betting the odds are not in your favor for, for this to pan out the way that the Lakers want it to pan out. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I'd want to uh, touch on something that you mentioned about the lack of kind of offensive structure um, that the Lakers have experienced, um, because this has been a really big criticism of the Knicks this year. And even going back to last year, I think, uh, you know, Stacy brought this up last year. Also, like a lot of people did is that, yes, the team doesn't have a true quote unquote point guard. They're limited with their personnel. They don't have the most dynamic shot creation, but I guess, you know, how much control do you feel like coaching staffs and coaches in general have in terms of running sets and and having a more, I don't want to say complex offense, but more layered offense? Um, and, and like, is the lack of a point guard, right? Like, let's just give Tibbs a benefit of the doubt and say they don't have a good point guard, okay? Mm-hmm. Whatever, that, whatever that means necessarily. Does that excuse not having more layered sets, um, not being able to create looks for players that go beyond a lot of like ISOs and hope you draw a double team and then you can kick it from there or the guy can exploit an, a mismatch. Like, it, it, Is it wrong to, to criticize a coach or expect more um, given those type of limitations? I would say it's not wrong. I mean, I've worked with teams i've built playbooks i like literally coaching a team this year uh obviously not at the nba level but like and and you can look at other teams at various levels throughout basketball that like don't have strong lead like point guard play point guard playmaking kinds of talent that can still be much better like running an offense is about creating advantages if you have really good 1v1 players and good playmakers they create those advantages on their own and then they're able to exploit them with good passing. And then you just have to good, have good finishing around it. When you don't have those guys that can create those initial advantages, you're going to just naturally end up with worse shots than you otherwise would like to. And if you're not leaning into running sets that can create those advantages for you in lieu of having that individual ability, you're really, really, you know, making it tough for your offense to succeed. Like I, I there's no, I, we played this game with the Lakers years ago. And people said, oh, well, they're too young or they don't have the talent for it or all these different things under Luke Walton when they didn't have a good offense. None of those were like legitimate reasons to not like run real sets. We see college teams, we see high school teams running good offense with poor players that can like get something out of it. So I do think that it is it is there's nothing wrong with you guys expecting more, demanding more Um, and like the only way you can really rationalize that is if you're super, super honed in on only watching like your team or a couple teams. Like all it takes is a look around like college basketball, a look around the NBA to see how more structure can be really beneficial. And it, it, it doesn't just like raise your ceiling, it raises the floor as well. So, I mean, no matter what talent is going to dictate a lot of success, but if there's just no advantage creation due to sets, it puts so much more responsibility on the players and it's going to make them look worse. So yeah, I, the, the offense needs to be better for you guys, for the Lakers. 
David Fisdale's our offensive coordinator, which <laughs> is, a, is an absolute nightmare, man. I, I, you, you warned me about this. You talked about how Fizz ran like the worst offense you had seen uh, with the Knicks. Oh, We're yeah. seeing that with the Lakers. It's just straight up pickup basketball. Or they'll run plays that like so make sense. Take was, that for data. <laughs> there was there was actually a really really funny anecdote. And at the time, I was like, oh, that's kind of cool that he's like empowering his players. But as the season went along, you were like, actually, that was probably a really concerning like uh, point of information. Was uh, so early in his first season in New York, we played Dallas. We were at Dallas, and um, in the fourth quarter, like. Alonzo Trier, uh, who is no longer in the NBA, by the way, uh, he he was he was having a good shooting game. So down the stretch, Fizz, like literally audibly, you could hear him just tell tell Trier, like it was basically like you know clear out the entire paint, just have everybody else space out, and he was literally telling him, you could hear him say it, anything you want, anything you want, anything you want, and that was the entire fourth quarter offense. Um, so like it doesn't, when you tell me that the Lakers look like they're paying pickup for most of the game, like that doesn't surprise me in the least. Um, that's, you know, that's the type of offense he runs. And like, it's just, it was always funny to me because people's entire like defense of him would have been like, well, he was, you know, he came to New York and he was probably expecting to coach KD and Kyrie. And if he coached them, this would look so much better. And it's like, yeah, I mean, it would look better because those guys are better at just like being awesome do it yourself fucking scoring machines but like that doesn't actually justify what what he's doing currently and it actually is concerning because you know at the highest level like no matter the talent you have i think especially now we're seeing this in the nba more and more in the playoffs like like coaching matters a lot and having these offensive pivots and counters and more structure like these things matter a lot i mean you look at mike budenholzer right um this is a guy who was like religiously married to drop coverage, right? Mm-hmm. And it took some real playoff failures, multiple of them, for him to realize, like, hey, you know what? Like, I, I need to, I, like, this can't be the the sum total of my my defensive strategies and 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 my defensive playbook, really. And is that the reason why they won the championship last year? No, obviously not. Like, obviously, having Giannis Antetokounmpo, uh, you know, go into like. Hakeem 94 mode helps a lot, mm-hmm. but, but like without those counters, him going to that level might not matter either. So it's, it's, I, I think you see that a lot. And, and the biggest frustration I have with Tibbs and Stacy, I don't know if you feel this way also, but like the simplicity of things last year and the, the sheer like dedication to this is what we do. And this is how we're going to do it every single time down. I didn't mind that at all last year because I thought the team was in a very different place. Uh, it, it needed to establish a base foundation. It needed to get back to respectability. And I think the young players on the team, like, you know, like you look at RJ Barrett as a second year player quickly and OB as rookies, um, you know, they, they were in a different place. And I think that kind of rigidity and clear cut idea of this is what you do helped them have the seasons they had last year, both individually and collectively. And I just, but like you saw kind of in that playoff series against Atlanta and granted, I don't think they win that series, even if Tibbs is like some Nick nurse level, you know, he's going to pull everything out. Right. Like, I don't, I don't think they win that series anyway, but I think you saw laid bare some of the issues with it. And the hope is he as a coach would see that and he could go back to the drawing board and he could come back with, you know, I don't expect Tibbs to change who he is, but it's like, 
can you at least give like when when you need to pull out a counter or have a different strategy or go with a different alignment can you do that and i think the the disappointment for me is that that has not been the case at all this year yeah i think you know there's you know based on what tim said there's a couple of things i'd want to touch on there as well um so number one i think we had um we had seth part now on the pod and he was talking about how a lot of Tibbs' issues come from being a control freak. And, you know, the sets they run are very simple. There aren't, there isn't a whole lot of, um, you know, there isn't a whole lot of, you know, a whole lot of reads. You know, guys are kind of going through the motions. Um, so how do you kind of, because, like, I think, you know, we can think about adding structure. But, you know, is there a point where maybe it's not even a lack of structure for Tribs, but too much? And, like, they don't have kind of the freedom to to improvise on cuts and make different reads and be like five moving parts as opposed to very localized stuff. And the other question I'd have um, is around, so I think a common thing when you talk about when, you know, we've had many these conversations with people and people are like, you know, this is, you know, without talent, you can't really get this done, but also, you know, the playoffs really devolves to ISO all the time anyway, or the fourth quarter does, right? Actually, me and Schwinn had a pod with uh, last year where we we got into an argument over this because you know, the Knicks were running very unimaginative offense. And to Schwinn's point, you know, it seemed to overall be working out, but especially in the fourth quarter, just it's only Randall ISOs and post-ups, uh, which is what we're seeing a lot this year. Um, so yeah, my the two questions would be, how do you kind of think about giving structure while allowing that freedom to players to make reads and, you know, reading the game and then the game tells you what to do? Um, and also, you know, what would you say to people who, you know, who defend a lack of offensive creativity, particularly late in games by saying, well, late in games, teams just are and in the playoffs. The, the game just evolves to ISO anyway. That's a really good question. And, and something that I think is often misconstrued potentially when it comes to like the play calling and, and, and sets. Ideally, when you design an offense and you have your playbook, you're not just randomly calling plays out. You're not calling out a play because it's been the most efficient play for you on the year. It, 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 think to, I guess I'll say, look at, look at football. Think to football. When you see an offense get to the line of scrimmage, look at the defense, and then audible, it's because they're saying, we are anticipating they're in a cover three, we're going to attack the seams. Or they're in a cover, cover four, we're going to run the ball. Or it's, it's what is the defense doing from a coverage standpoint? Based on that, what is it weak at? So we're going to adjust what we're doing to attack what it's weak at. In basketball, it can be that same way. And Phoenix is the best example I can think of. Kevin Young's their offensive coordinator. He is brilliant. He's going to get a head coaching job at some point soon. They do the best job I've seen of any team um, at saying, okay, what are you in? If you're in drop coverage, we're going to run our plays that beat drop coverage. They're not just randomly calling plays off their playbook. It's organized in a way where they have a handful of things that beat the more aggressive hedges, a handful of things that be trapping, a handful of things that be drop, a handful of things that attack switching. And as long as, I mean, it's not like the in football where defenses are switching up their coverage like every play or every couple plays. It's, it's like you're seeing the same drop coverage for like quarters or halves or games from guys. So if they're giving up the same weakness, run the same couple sets that beat the hell out of it 
and and punish and exploit the fact that that a defense is doing that. That's something that like if Milwaukee wasn't more flexible, they would have been torched by Phoenix in the finals because Phoenix their offense is an absolute buzzsaw in terms of attacking soft hedges, attacking showing and recovering and attacking drop coverage. They're they've gotten better this season at attacking switching, but last season attacking switching they didn't have as much built-in stuff. And Aiden wasn't as able to take advantage of post mismatches. So it was a lot of just like Booker or Chris Paul, like go one V one against somebody, which can work, but it's not the same degree of like, we will generate an open lob or corner three. If you run drop coverage against us because of our set. So the structure with offense to me, it ideally you don't have a play that you're calling. And I guess this is somewhere I disagree with Seth. And, and when I'm designing playbooks and working with teams on this, um, consulting at the, the college level, the NBA level, high school, what have you. Um, you don't want to have plays that allow every player to be making like three or four or five decisions every couple seconds or something like that. Like that's too much. You want to be able to like call something out that is very targeted and beats the weakness in the defense. And that requires that your coaching staff recognizes, you know, what coverage they're in and is calling the right plays. Um, we see some teams at the NBA level do this really well. Some teams at the NBA level do not do this well. A lot of college teams have no clue what they're doing with this. High school teams, never even heard of this. Um, but that is where you can keep things simple for your guys, but make uh, you know cause a lot of issues for the defense because you're attacking what they're giving you. And unless they're just like absolutely switching up coverages every other play, this is going to work pretty well. And that's just the defenses in, in basketball haven't gotten to that point yet. So this is a strategy and is a best practice that we see in the better teams do. So I would say, I mean, if I were advising the Knicks, organize your playbook in terms of what coverage is it beats. If you don't know, that's a problem. And a lot of coaches don't know. They're just like, oh, well, this one works or this one doesn't work as well. Why does it work? Why doesn't it work? And that's a big issue with scheme coverage in general in, on the media side, the public side, even the coaches. It's a lot of, oh, here's a play, but nobody explains why the play works, what coverages it works against, what coverages it doesn't work against. And actually, you know, little side note, we're building up at Basketball Index an entire scheme course with a whole curriculum and lesson plans and videos and diagrams and quizzes and certifications, all that stuff that we're going to be launching next year to try to fill that void in, in X's and O's coverage. But if, if you're Tibbs, organize that playbook. And then see what the hell the defenses are doing. And when you're playing Frank Vogel and the Lakers and drop for a whole half of basketball, just torch it with with uh, stack or Spain pick and rolls or picking and popping um, or veer action where the screener and a ball screen then sets like an off ball screen. Like do the things that specifically attack what the defense is giving you. Um, that's I, I, that has to be the answer for that. Um, and, to, and, and kind of going to the the um, kind of going back to the football analogy, right? So in football. A lot of it is also disguising, you know, things like play action um, and those kind of things, right? Um, to what extent is it very simplified where, like, you know what a defense is going to do and you should just hammer it uh, versus, you know, something like where you do have to disguise these things and being able to creatively not just call the right play against a certain coverage, but make it look like it's one thing and then the coverage doesn't need to react to. Do you think that plays a bigger role or is it, you know, simpler than that? I'd say it's more like an RPO than than play action with, with basketball, where like if you're building in the right things, where where like with an RPO you're reading uh, like a linebacker or a safety and seeing what they're doing. What does that help defense looking like in basketball? You could be running a ball screen where you have, we'll, we'll say it's uh, an aggressive hedge 
the, the big man's at the level of the ball. So we know we've got two guys on the ball temporarily. Our role man is going to have an advantage. The defense will need to rotate. At that point, you can have everyone else just stand around and watch, which makes it easier for the defense to help and recover. Or you could be running weak side simultaneous, like pin downs, flare screens, or what we'd call shake action, where if, if the tag man's on the side of the court where there's only one offensive player and there's no one to potentially help that helper, you have that offensive player, instead of just standing in the corner, run all the way up to the wing. So his man helping at the rim then has to run all the way to the wing rather than just a couple steps out to the corner. Those little things then allowing your ball handler to read lob or kick out. That's that's like the, the two layers of it where like the first piece of it is we know what coverage they're in. But that doesn't mean there's always going to be, you know, one guy will be open every time. It, it then goes to how do I, as the player, read the defense and what they're going to do. Um, in terms of disguise, from a, an offensive standpoint, just the worst thing you can do is run like one set out of like horns, one set out of five out, one set out of four out, one in, where like the defense immediately knows what's coming. That surprise element can matter, but it should be less like... I don't know. It should be less like a trick play in football where it's like once every, you know, pl- once every game or two, you, you do something real tricky. It should be more like going in a haunted house where like fucking every turn there's dudes popping out and scaring the shit out of you because you have no idea what's coming. And, and that's where offensively designing your team and your, in your offense, you want to have a lot from the same formations with a lot of the same actions and then just have the, the sets themselves differ based on what the coverage looks like. And I would imagine randomness and what you actually choose, kind of like rock, paper, scissors, right, um, matters kind of to that extent, right? When you have all of the, the haunted house shenanigans and, you know, you don't have certain tendencies. Uh, yeah, yeah, to an extent. And I think that's more like it, it's more about coming from the same look and then being able to do a lot out of it and not letting the defense say, oh, they're in horns. Everybody switch on this individual play. You want the defense to have to, you know, pick a broad strategy okay, we are going to run drop coverage all the time and then put them in specific situations that until the last minute, they can't realize that you're about to beat their drop coverage with with how you're running your set. If you telegraph what's about to happen, like teams telegraph their like Spain action, then you see teams run very specific, okay, for this one play, we're going to run this like super unique three-man switch to beat the play we think they're about to call. Um, and you can build counters off of that. And that's where the play action part of it comes in where it's, okay, we're anticipating the Suns are going to run Spain, but then instead of uh, them running to the spots they normally run to, they're going to go run to the vacated area because we're playing almost a zone defense instead of man-to-man on that play. Um, so it's th- there are definitely levels to it. And I think the analogies to football can come in in a bunch of different ways. But in general, like attack coverages don't make it super obvious what you're about to do from an alignment standpoint. Um, and be purposeful about like, if they're doing this, we're going to attack it this way and, and trying to keep reads simple. Um, if you're, if you're playing a team that's like overplaying all the time, you can build in ways to beat that where it's less, okay, we need, uh, we need uh, Barrett to read that he's overplayed. Therefore he's going to cut, but oops, we have someone in the post. So the cut doesn't actually work. If you're seeing it, you know, the other team's overplaying, you call specific sets to take advantage of that. Like when you top lock Steph Curry and the Warriors, back cutting against that is a way to beat it. But if there's someone in the post or in the paint, it's not going to work as well. So they do purposeful things to clear the paint out specifically to beat your top locking. It's that kind of like, what are you doing as a defense? Okay. As an offense, we know that we can do this thing or that thing to go beat it. And then if you adjust, we adjust. 
Interesting. Uh, all right, before we continue, Hoops fans, the latest offer from DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA, is too good to pass up. I'm talking between the legs, 360 windmill good. New customers can bet just $1 on any team and get $150 in free bets if they win. It's that simple. If Sportsbook isn't available in your state yet, you can still take your shot at a big payday. Everyone can play for huge cash prizes with DraftKings Daily Fantasy Basketball Contest. DraftKings is giving all new customers a free shot at millions of dollars in total prizes with their first deposit. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code TBPN. Bet just $1 on any NBA team and get $150 in free bets if they win. That's promo code TBPN at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. 21 plus minimum age and location requirements vary by jurisdiction. See DraftKings.com slash Sportsbook for a full list of requirements and state-specific responsible gaming resources. Void where prohibited. Minimum $5 deposit. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. In Tennessee, call or text the TN Redline 1-800-889-9789. In Connecticut, call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat. In New York, Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY-467-369. Um, yeah, okay, so uh, this has been a pretty interesting conversation. Uh, I want to ask a different question here. So, like, you know, with Tibbs, there's been, uh, and I, I don't know if you've been following this or not, but, like, there's this whole debate about, like, alignment between the front office and the coaching staff and how it's, it seems like they're not on the same page. And I think that's fair. I don't think they are on the same page. Um, what I'm curious to ask you is, you know, if you're not on the same page, like, I don't know if that really is relevant in terms of the decisions you make as a coach to optimize your chances of winning each game. And, you know, if you're sticking with lineups that are not working in terms of winning games, like, if you, like, you can believe as a coach that the other options on the team aren't going to help you tangibly reverse those results. But if you're not trying, I mean, isn't that, 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 that seems like a failure of coaching and imagination, right? And, And I guess, like, the reason I, I feel like I have a little bit more sympathy for Vogel than probably most Lakers fans do just from the outside looking in is like, I do feel like I see him try things, you know, like I I know that obviously injuries forced his hand, but he has played LeBron at the five. Mm -hmm. Uh, He did decide like, you know what, Russell Westbrook, this is not working. You're sitting down the stretch of this games. Um, Like I see a lot more of that from him. Whereas with Tibbs, as the season has gone on, it's almost like he's actually become more rigid and more steadfast in his beliefs. And I'm just curious, like what your thoughts are on, you know, what does it mean for alignment? Like how does alignment play into the decision-making a coach makes? And does it really like matter if they're aligned or not? Because inherently a coach's job is tied into optimizing your team performance. And if you're chasing wins, that's that's fine. But like, if you're chasing wins and you're keep leaning on bad bad lineups and vets that aren't getting the job done, then it doesn't really make sense to keep leaning on those things. And even if the front office wants you to 
lean more into player development versus winning games, it, it seems like you would also maybe benefit from that also. Yeah, it really depends on how it materializes. I think like if the misalignment is I want to play this certain style of defense or we're missing this element of our team, you know, please go seek that out in trades. And then the front office goes and gives you a piece that like you don't want to use or like doesn't fit into your plans or the broader strategy. Not using that piece that doesn't fit would be misalignment. And I mean, maybe to you is, is, is optimizing what's going on just because that piece isn't a fit that, that could be how, you know, one way of how mm-hmm. that could look. Um, where like, I don't know, for example, with the Lakers, if they were to bring in some drop coverage big right now, that doesn't really fit the switch strategy that the rest of the rotation is kind of set up with. Um, now the coaching staff hasn't really done a good job of leaning into that, but like, if you go and give me a DeAndre Jordan replacement right now, like that's not really a super helpful thing this season. Unless like a bunch of dudes are injured, which is kind of the case right now with AD out. But if it's misalignment in terms of like, we want to be playing the young guys versus leaning on more veteran players, I can understand why that can be challenging. And and I don't know, no matter what, with any organization, whether it's basketball or something else, you want to have managerial alignment and you want to have everyone understand like how what they're doing fits into the big picture and be bought into that big picture. So that they're you know as fully engaged as possible, giving it their all every day, putting in all that extra effort, um, in in you know being as productive as they possibly can. And over time, like you're going to have issues that pop up, whether it be injuries or you know players not playing well or whatever, where a challenge arises and you need to work through it as a leadership group. And having any you know fracturing there. In, in you know degrading that trust to any extent can be really troublesome when maybe as the coaching staff you know what needs to happen but the front office doesn't trust you and won't listen to that guidance um, so I think it can it can have longer term ramifications uh, short term I, I get I, I see what you're saying where it's just like you know your job is still kind of the same but maybe the tools that you're given to do your job wouldn't be fully optimized. Um, to to you know you accomplishing that job or like mm. if the tools you're given are to do a different job than the one you're like you think you're supposed to be doing you're obviously not going to do as well at that job so uh, it it really I mean if you want to nail down more specifics on on exactly what that yeah. is yeah so like I mean I think for an example um it was reported at the deadline that now it's that all this stuff is coming out right like worldwide west is stabbing in the back and all this shit um also if you want a, a really good one um mark berman now has written like three separate times about how scott perry was banging the table for demar Derozan. he he wanted demar Derozan. nobody else did so i really wonder who mark berman sources in the front office <laughs> um but um like okay so there's there's a few things it's been reported now after the deadline, even during it, leading up to it, that Tibbs wanted the front office to get pieces that could help the team now. Okay, I think we know what that means. That means get pieces that can help him win some games on the floor now. Make you maybe you can make a run to that six seed or at least get into the plan for sure. Um, uh, presumably, uh, there was a. I, I'm not, I know I had messaged you the morning of the trade deadline, but like there was that Lakers, uh, Knicks, Raptors three way trade that was discussed. Um, I think the Knicks' motivation in that was to get draft comp, or the front office's motivation in that trade was they wanted to get draft compensation back. And I also believe that they wanted to 
unload a couple of their vets that would clear some cap space for this offseason. Um, now, what has been reported by a few people since then is that Tibbs wanted... Yeah, he was happy to get Goran Dragic back, but he actually wanted to play Goran Dragic. Like, that was... He did not... Like, he was not... The front office is looking at Goran Dragic like, man, this $19.5 million expiring salary is going to be great. And Tibbs is like, man, Goran Dragic is going to be great. And, like, what I think... At least, this is just me. Uh, my, my guess is I think that the front office wants him to give quickly a shot at the starting point guard spot. And... That doesn't mean that they truly believe that quickly is going to be the Knicks's next uh, great starting point guard, or maybe the first starting great starting point guard since fucking Walt Clyde Frazier in the seventies. Um, but like, I don't think that's necessarily their belief. But they want to see it. They want to see that kid get that chance in that position for an extended run of games. That's what I think. And I don't think Tibbs feels like Tibbs wants to win the games. And he doesn't believe that quickly necessarily, which I think is mistaken, and Stacy can probably write a fucking thesis about why he thinks this isn't a good reason. Uh, T- Tibbs does not believe that quickly is going to give him the best chance of winning games if he plays as the nominal starting point guard for the team. Um, so I think that's one issue. I think another issue is, and you talked about, I think what you mentioned, uh, Tim, about what a coach wants and then what a front office wants and then what they actually get can be very different. I Tibbs, by all reporting and by his own comments, I don't think he cared about getting Cam Reddish at all. Like, I don't think he wanted a Cam Reddish. I don't think that was part of his thinking. And I think by his actions has made it very clear he's not particularly interested in trying to uh, get the best out of Cam Reddish and work him into the rotation particularly. I think the front office saw, we like, if you look at the Knicks' wings, Burks, RJ, and Fournier are the Knicks wings and Grimes. None of them are that tall wing three, four potentially type of prototype. Right. And Reddish is, you know, you actually had a, I think you had a really funny thread about like how camera sucks. And then at the end you were like, but definitely trade him to the Lakers for a couple of second round picks. Um, but it's like, it's because yeah, he sucks right now as a player. Like there's no debating that he's not a good player right now, but you're not trading for him for the player he is now. You're, you're trading for him because you see the tools, you see the potential and your goal is to work with him to develop him into a player that is really valuable. Cause those three, four wings, like we know this looking around the NBA, those are, those are worth gold in the NBA, right? Like I, Harrison Barnes is not an amazing player, but that archetype that he fills is valuable and that's why like he's always going to get paid uh and he's always going to find a place in the nba and teams will probably covet him in trade because having those type of just competent three four players give you so much versatility and flexibility so i think the the front office looked at that they said they had a protected first a charlotte protected first and they rolled the dice and picked you know hey look we can get this guy for a protected first and and kevin knox who is not going to be an nba player like for, and they got a second back, right? So. Yeah, and they got a second back for an archetype that really we don't have in this roster and would give us a lot of lineup flexibility and roster flexibility moving forward if he does develop. And I think with Tibbs, he's like, well, this guy doesn't help me win games now. So why the fuck are you trading for him? 
And so those are the two things really like that come to mind. And I also, if you want to get into like OB stuff where look, they drafted the kid eighth overall, and you can tell me they anticipated that they, they didn't, they definitely did not anticipate Julius Randall becoming a key part of their plans going forward, but he is now. And I still don't think like, to me, the idea that OB and Randall can never play together is in theory, I could get there. But you need to show me that proof. Like the proof of concept has to exist, exist first. You have to prove to me it can't work. You have to try to make it work. And if it doesn't, then so be it. And so I think those three things are probably for me when I'm talking about misalignment. And I think for most Knicks fans, and Stacy, correct me if I'm wrong or jump in after I'm done here. But like to me, I think those are the three things where you see very, very clearly um, a degree of they are not on the same page like they quite were in the first season last year, which, and I think it was a lot easier to be on the same page last year than it was this year. Yeah. I mean, I think you would agree on all those points. Um, I think the Knicks are trying to build a modern roster and Tibbs is kind of set in his ways. And this is a roster built for flexibility. Like people talk about, we need to consolidate, but the other half of it is when you do have a deep roster of like a bunch of almost misfit guys who do nevertheless have some skills you can get funky, and that's like an ability this lineup, this roster has, that he hasn't exploited. Um, you know, shout out. You know, one one thing that's been on my mind for a while is um, so state of NYK Pod. Um, shout out to State. Uh, he had he had said once that there's a lineup that he would like to see, which would be, um, you know, Rose Grimes, um, uh, Rose Grimes, um, RJ Cam at the four, and Randall, like a small ball lineup. And then my instant thought was like well, they're going to get killed on the glass, right? Uh, but the other thing was like, yeah, but th- that's one type of losing possessions, right? Um, but the other part of it is with Grimes, RJ, and Cam, you're probably going to force a lot more turnovers, right? Your transition game should be really good because all five of those guys can run. You have two, you have two really good shooters in Cam and Grimes, um, uh, you know, as well as Rose who can, who can create, uh, and RJ who's been capable as a catch and shoot. And we're never going to see... That's just one example of something... We're never even going to get to see, and that bodes well. Both that bodes poorly both now because um, you know you're not getting able to really find what what these young guys are good at and mix and match on a team that probably lacks the high level talent. But even when we get that talent, you know, to you know to what Tim was saying earlier, um, you know, you lose that flexibility that teams often need to have to make true title runs. But um, but anyway, um, I I have to drop so. So, yeah, that's an interesting lineup, and this is somewhere where I, I immediately pull up our Basketball Index lineups app where I can go in and I can look at actual lineups the teams have used and how they've graded out using more, like, stabilized performance metrics so it's not just, like, this is a small sample, therefore we have to throw it out. Um, you can really compare lineups no matter what sample size. We also have another tab in there that lets you make custom lineups. And along with this, it's not just, like, offensive rating, defensive rating type of stuff, we can look at our like talent metrics at B-Ball Index and see, all right, for, I think it was Rose, Grimes, Barrett, Reddish, Randall, that lineup compared to other lineups, how does it stack up in terms of like on-ball defense or ball handler screen defense or defensive rebounding or things like that? And I, I do think like immediately, you know, thinking of like how could this work and finding one area would be weaker is like 100% not the reason to not use something like you have to look holistically at like, okay, if it's going to be weaker in these areas, which areas will it be stronger? And then big picture it, from a, like a net rating standpoint, how's it going to perform for us? And so like for that group, I just plug that in 
their defensive rebounding talent compared to all of other lineups in our database, 41st percentile. So like below average could be worse, um, but they've got some decent rebounders in there. The on-ball perimeter defense for that group would be in the 99.9th percentile. Um, chaser defense, so like chasing dudes around screens in the 81st percentile. Ball handler screen defense, so, so like the uh, guard defense and ball screens and dribble handoffs, 70th percentile. Like there are some areas defensively where it, it makes a lot of sense. And then when we look from like a spacing standpoint, they've got a B grade in terms of getting to the rim, 91st percentile, playmaking, 96th percentile, uh, their middle game talent, so like mid-range pull-ups and floaters, 98th percentile. Like this is a group that offensively looks like it'd be a lot of fun. Um, and, and defensively, like there will be some weaker areas, but there'll be other areas where it is stronger. Um, so just looking holistically, I think is a, is, you know, what you always want to do when evaluating what a five man grouping could look like. And, and I would hope to your point, Schwinn, like with, with Obi and Randall, like it's more the burden of proof on them, given the, like, uh, you know, the, the draft pick that they used for Obi is the burden of proof is to prove that it can't work. Rather than like, you know, prove to me this can work. Like two talented dudes. I can, I mean, there are other teams in the league that run out guys of their styles together. Like this, this can be done. I'd love to see them give it a try. Uh, Speaking to misalignment between the front office and the coaching staff. It's, it's interesting that you call out the like playing quickly part. Like I guess the way I'm interpreting what's been described to me and what I see in the data is a coaching staff that thinks like they're just trying to win games. Like they're 13 in the standings right now. They are on the outside looking in from a play-in standpoint. They're not making any kind of real run this year. And the front office from a trade standpoint, and then also with these uh, like rotation things that they're pushing, it's more, okay, turn the page. Like teams are either competing or like in the playoffs to compete, or they are like full out like tanking or like not really trying to win games, looking more to develop and, and get good draft picks. Right now, the the Knicks are like that one team in the middle right now in the East that aren't clearly doing one or the other, it appears. Yeah. And uh, just uh, you yes. didn't commit because you, you can't play both sides, fail at both and, and end out on top. Like either commit to either say, you know, this isn't our year. Therefore, we're going to change our priorities. And you as a coaching staff have to get on board with that. And here's how we're going to approach that. Or you got to commit to to going all in. And they already kind of missed that window with the trade deadline. So it's, it is time, I think, for, for Tibbs to, you know, look around, look at the standings, look at the roster they have and realize that long-term big picture, it's probably better for this franchise to see what you can get out of Reddish, to see what you can get out of Quickly as a point guard, to see how Obi and Randall might be able to work together. And like, maybe you find some stuff that carries over next year. But if you don't, it doesn't really matter because you weren't going to make a run this year anyway. Yeah, and that's that's really like the frustrating part for me is like, I think the Knicks, I, they, I don't think they expected in any world if you gave fucking Leon Rose, Worldwide West, and Tibbs truth serum before last season and asked them what you, what do you think the ceiling for this team is i don't think any of them would have said 41 and 31 fourth seed like i don't think a, i don't think they were thinking that i think they wanted to just be competent literally just be a competent non-joke of a franchise and then we will build from there and i think that put them in a weird position where all of a sudden like you're you're not like when you once you go 41 and third when you're the fourth seed there's an expectation of like okay now 
we're going to add pieces and take another step or at least maintain our standing. And then in a year's time, our young guys are going to be better. And then we can really take a step. And I mm-hmm. think they tried to balance that as best they could with the contracts they gave out and the players they signed. That didn't work. But they also positioned themselves to have a natural pivot on the roster in terms of strategy, right? Like they still have all these young guys and they didn't trade any of them last summer. They didn't trade any of them at the deadline. Uh, even the one pick, the, the one trade they did make, the one trade they did make, which sent out a first round pick obviously was for a young player and a second round pick. So it's like all of these decisions, like it, it kind of speaks to, they wanted, I don't think they were ever fully. I don't think if you just look at kind of how it, it's played out, seems pretty clear they weren't exactly like gung-ho and fully 100% behind the idea that this roster was going to be like the first step to getting to that level of we're a contender at the top of the East. Um, I think they approached it as balanced as they could. And now it's time to, like, as you said, turn the page. And, you know, there, there's a couple of things that people talk about a lot. Um, and I'm curious to get your thoughts on this before let's start with the OB Randall thing, because Obviously, you don't have a traditional rim protector in that group, and I. But, but I, I'm actually very curious to get your thoughts because you saw Randall a lot in LA. Obviously, mm-hmm. I know there was that one year where they finished what, like 11th in defensive rating? Was that it uh, with Luke Walton or something? Um, and Randall played a bunch of the. I think they. I think <laughs> I'm Randall to forget those years. It's very yeah. possible. Yeah, and I think Randall played a bunch of the five there, but like Randall is not a guy who fits at all at the five or any position if you're going to have him execute drop coverages, right? Like that's just not a thing he does well. And part of that is physical limitations. And part of that is also just like, he has really bad habits in drop coverage where he just like, he like stands square and doesn't either cut off the drive or the pocket pass. So it's just like very easy. Um, But like Randall does, there are things Randall is very good at defensively. Like he's a great switch defender for a big guy. Cause he's got those really quick, like running back feet. Right. Um, and he's a strong dude. So like quick feet, strong dude, not exactly a guy that you're going to mismatch hunt in ISO a bunch. Um, and between him and Obi, they're both very athletic big guys. And so like, I mean, what, what is it? How hard is it for, for a coach who is, obviously like Tibbs has a very strong idea of what he wants to do defensively. Right. And part of that is having his big, be a tradi- his center, especially be a traditional rim protector, play a lot of drop coverage and shut off the, like, you know, he'll, he'll concede mid range, but he is not trying to, to give you anything at the rim. Now, obviously Obi and Randall as a pairing would require a different type of coverage. How difficult is that for a coach to implement, in season and also just like how hard is that philosophically for a coach to accept and and get comfortable with the idea of like okay this isn't what i ideally want to do but this is something that i should do and this is something that maybe can yield um a different path to success that that gives us a different kind of uh you know option to match up with teams if they present different problems it can be challenging or it can be just part of a coach's DNA. I think a lot of coaches, I think the, the more I talk to coaches, I realize that there are a lot of people who succeed because they're super flexible and they realize, okay, what we did last year doesn't work with this roster. How can we, how can we switch things up? And then there are a lot of guys who are really good at what they do because they've been really good at a specific style and they've, they've perfected that. And 
when you need to, when, when those coaches run into rosters that don't match what they want to do, that's when you run into trouble. And I think that might be what we're seeing with, with this next roster. So the Lakers are in that same boat where it's like Frank Vogel wants to run drop coverage. He wants his guards to fight over screens, get back pressure. We'll concede some mid range shots, but we are going to defend the rim, defend the rim, defend the rim. And his, his, his roster just does not match that. And we've seen it take way too long for them to lean into what they're built for from a scheme standpoint. And it's, it's cost them wins. Like it's cost them like half a dozen, if not like double digits in wins. Uh, Cause they'll play entire two, three quarters of games where these guys don't match what you're trying to have them do. They're just not the right players for their job. Just a very, very specific question. The Lakers dropped two games to the Thunder, right? Uh, mm-hmm. If I remember correctly. Yep. Was playing drop coverage a big part of that? Because that was a huge problem for us when we played OKC. Yep. Yeah. Yep. It, it wasn't both those games we lost to the, the Kings. There were so many games the Lakers have lost by like two or three points where for an entire half of basketball, they were not doing what made any sense for them to do defensively. Mm-hmm. And it's not just like playing drop with like Dwight or DeAndre. They'd be playing drop with like LeBron or playing drop with <laughs> Carmelo Anthony. Like this makes no sense. It's not just like... Uh, you know, it's matching what our guys are good at, but you know, we're going to play our defense every day. It's, it doesn't even match what the players are good at. So I don't know if that's exactly what you're experiencing, but I would imagine the path to success with Randall at the five would look like either switching. And if you're going to do that, you want to have guys up and down the the lineup that are able to do that. Um, and playing or yeah, or, and I'd sw- I'd mix in blitzing. You can't have blitzing mm. be like your default. If, right, right. If you know as an offense that you're going to get a blitz, you can set up really easy ways to beat that. But uh, a little bit less aggressive than that would be like soft hedging or catch hedging, where the mm. big man's at the level of the screen and you're you're able to defend the rim without good rim protectors because you're cutting off drives early. And yeah. in Dallas does this really well this year. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And in order to do that, you have to have guards and wings on the back end that rotate really well. This was the Lakers issue last season is they ran a coverage that made sense for their bigs, but they had THT and Dennis Schroeder's space cadets back there who were just blowing rotations half the time. And so as long as you just ran two or three ball screens in a play, you were going to find a breakdown somewhere. So that is that skill set. So the, from a big man standpoint, there are different routes to go and different skill sets involved with each. From a guard and wing standpoint, same deal. Like Avery Bradley, great at fighting over ball screens for the Lakers. Not somebody you want switching. Um, yeah. And also doesn't rotate well. There are certain guys, I, I mean, I can't speak to the rotational abilities of like Grimes or Barrett or these different players, but it, you want to find the scheme that matches up, not just with the big man skill sets, but also with the guard skill sets. Mm-hmm. And when in yeah. doubt, if you if you don't have a clear answer, like just go with what the team you're playing is worst against. Like I know we could switch against the Knicks, and even if you know we have some weaknesses up and down, you know here and there in the roster that they can pick on, it you know stops their offense, and they don't have built in ways to attack that. Therefore, it makes sense. And actually, in that second half of the Lakers Knicks game, we saw both teams switching, and neither offense had any clue what the hell yeah. to do. Um, <laughs> so it, when you're playing a team that like just schematically on offense has no clue how to attack a certain thing. Just, just do it. Even if it's not the best way to use your players. Yeah. Um, and yeah, switching has given us problems. Like the Hornets are a God awful defensive team and they switch a lot. And both times we played them, we've looked like just totally inept offensively against it. Um, and I, I guess like, uh, you know, 
So the Knicks, uh, obviously, you know, to to get to your point about like matching personnel to scheme, like I guess this is where it's hard for a front office though, too, right? Because it's like, well, we need to take a step forward offensively, and these pieces might help us do that, but they don't necessarily fit into what Tibbs or you know any coach or you can jump any team around the NBA probably deals with the situation, but they don't necessarily fit into what coach wants to do defensively and like balancing that is probably i mean looking at what was available on free agency last year we can play this game forever but like it's it's hard right to like match up those those two things where it's like we need to take take a step forward offensively how much is that gonna take us back defensively do we trust our coach to adjust his scheme or cover up the weaknesses of these groups or adjust like and 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 really just be more flexible as the season goes along yeah, it's you have to look at like what's the long term here. Are the are do we have players that we know are part of this long term future, and we want to then work around, and that includes coaching and find coaching that matches what they're good at, or is it the other way around where like we know we've got a good coach, we know we've got a decent scheme, and we're just kind of cycling through players that we're not really committed to in any way long term. We don't know that they're part of the future, and we're just going to keep kind of cycling through guys until we find those dudes. If you found those dudes, find ways to maximize them. And as long as you're hiring like a competent coaching staff, like I wouldn't necessarily in all situations prioritize continuity if it comes at the expense of like, all right, for these next three, four, five years, we are not going to be deploying you guys in ways that make sense um, defensively. So like if if it's really like, oh, you know, Tibbs just cannot adjust and like you have to lay it out for them. Communication is key here. Like you have to say, these are guys that we are committed to offensively. We don't see them fitting into this scheme, but we see them fitting into that scheme. That's what we're looking for from your position as, as coach in the defensive mm-hmm. scheme. Can you, can you do that? Can you commit to that or not? And, and move on if you need to move on. Yeah. Yeah. And I think like the best coaches, at least around the NBA now, it seems like, you know, to your point, are guys that are super flexible. Like Ty Lue is probably my favorite coach in the NBA. Yep. He's crazy flexible. Nick Nurse, you know, Spolstra. he's willing to try literally anything and anybody. Uh, Spolstra, like the list goes on. But those three, for me, like just looking around the league, I feel like they're just so, so good at getting the most out of their groups. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I, I, this is, so this is like Tibbs, very specifically throughout his career, has loved having a point guard who, quote unquote, gets rim pressure, can get into the paint, gets two feet in the paint, scrambles defenses, right? That's been a very big thing for him, having a penetrating, dynamic penetrating guard. That's why, obviously, he's had such success with Derrick Rose, who is that player to a T. Um, how do you feel like that, having rim pressure, getting consistent dribble penetration, obviously, that is like an important part of a healthy offense, but very specifically, like, do you think it is possible for teams to have effective and diverse offenses, even if they lack that type of dynamic on-ball dribble penetration? Or without that, is it just like you're doomed to be a bottom 5-10 offense? Not necessarily. So here, I mean, if I'm looking at like what a point guard needs to look like in order to create advantages and open up stuff for teammates 
if not through their ability to get to the rim, collapse the defense, force rotations, and then you know read the defense, make the right read, pass it out, and then get guys good shots or dump the ball off for good shots or whatever. If they're not cre- able to create advantages that way, what you really need then is someone who is a point guard that you can run ball screens for that's a like pull-up three-point shooting threat to the point that defenses need to run those aggressive screen, uh, screen coverages. Like when you play Dallas – more so last year than this year, and you're defending Luca, or let's say you're defending Trey Young, like you ha- cannot run drop coverage. You have to have your big man at the level of the ball. And that just on its own, having two defensive players on one offensive player automatically is generating 4v3 advantages for the offense as long as they read it correctly. If if you're, you know, rolling, get it into the short roll, boom, mm-hmm. there's a 4v3 to attack. Or if you're smart about it, you'll turn that 4v3 into like a 3v2 or a 2v1. Uh, through like player positioning so if it's not someone who can drive and pressure the defense that way to create advantages I would be looking for a guy who through their perimeter shooting ability on ball is really able to do that because that really manipulates how a defense needs to guard you in ball screens other than that like if you can't do either of those things you're not I mean I don't know. You need some real strong X's and O's to like basically just not have that player be a playmaker um, mm-hmm. or need to make any complex reads. And if you want to truly have success at the NBA level, you need to be able to do that. So I'd say it's one of those two styles of guys and ideally both. The best players do both, but you want to be able to do at least one of those two. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. It's been like a really big um thing with Knicks fans and obviously in general because you know that's been a terrible position for us over the years and um, it's like yeah you know Kemba hasn't been the dynamic pull-up threat that we were hoping he could provide and Rose has been injured and quickly has struggled with his shot and therefore people want to believe that trying him at all would be terrible I tend to think differently Um, there's also this I like I'm very very curious to get your thoughts on this because a lot of the um i don't want to say defensive tibs because it's like comes across very weird but like a lot of people's uh argument kind of in favor of tibs th- there's only so much he can do is shooting percentages so like if you look at the next shooting percentages randall's worse quickly's worse rj's worse the list goes on right from last year to this year now my issue with just looking at it like that is yeah but if you're not playing the good lineups together more often that does in that does impact shooting percentages and like there are lineups where guys shoot better because they play together as a group mm-hmm. and are they just they just the pieces just fit well together even you know and i guess like do you buy that that like you know tibbs can't really do anything to coax better shooting out of guys or or, or like get guys to shoot better or like do you more tend to align with my thinking is that like maybe that's the case but if you're if you play more lineups that over the course of the season have proven to be effective that might actually then also if you play them more that might actually see guys shoot better than they are currently it's i mean you <sighs> This is something I've gone through with the Lakers this year where people are like, this lineup can never work. There's nothing Frank Vogel can do. These, you know, the roster construction, it stinks. You can't blame him for anything. And that only goes 
you, that only works at the super high level. As soon as you start to analyze the game and dig into it a little bit more, you can see how with the similar groups of players, you can make more out of them if the scheme sticks. And and I, I think there are opportunities for New York to make more out of these guys. And rotations are part of it. Lineup construction is part of it. Scheme is part of it. And we see that materialize in shot quality. Like if I, I pulled up the Knicks three-point and, and rim shot quality this year, and let's see. There are only two players on the entire roster that have above average shot quality in both of those areas. And those are Obi Toppin and Quentin Grimes. Every other player either is getting like just absolutely garbage shots from three or shots at the rim. And so like when you're not able to generate good looks for guys, they're going to shoot worse. Like it's when, when you send, like if you think of like the Houston Rockets a couple years ago with like James Harden, they had guys like PJ Tucker who were getting the easiest threes in the whole league and putting up the same exact three-point percentage as James Harden. They're not the same caliber of three-point shooter. Harden was taking the hardest threes. Tucker was taking the easiest threes. Their mm-hmm. actual percentage was about the same, but that was just a factor of their shot-making and their shot quality. Some of the guys, like you mentioned on the Knicks, their shot-making has taken a dip this year, but there are things you can do process-wise through scheme and rotations uh, to improve the shot quality side of things so that the overall like end product can be better. And that's that's really where like if you ignore shot quality and it's just, oh, well, these guys shot well or didn't shoot well, like you're just chasing results at that point. You, you need to yeah. dig a level deeper and, and realize that coaching and lineups and all that stuff does impact just the caliber of shots players are able to get. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Um, all right, let's, uh, let's, let's change gears a little bit here. Uh, in the vein of the Knicks still need a point guard. Um, I am very curious. I, I know I asked you about him a little while back, but like Jalen Brunson, um, it feels like he's definitely improved this year, even from the level he was at last season. Um, I'm just curious, like, do you think that he is a player who one is a starting caliber point guard in the NBA? And two, would he fit well? Do you think in a lineup with, you know, RJ Barrett and, and Julius Randle. I, I, uh, I think so. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, he's good. He's, he can do things like I I think offensively he's pretty talented and we can look at a situation this year and look at the fact that like the spacing around him is, we have an F grade for that this year, ninth percentile, 91% of players have seen better spacing in our database than, than Brunson this year. And he's a smaller guy yet is still getting to the rim really, really well, finishing at the rim really, really well on F uh, shot quality at the rim. Uh, His playmaking data is legit. I don't think he is a top-tier playmaker by any means. He is more someone that is going to make the smart passes. He's going to get decent quality looks efficiently rather than guys who are chasing like elite quality looks and having lower efficiency but maybe seeing the floor a bit better, having higher versatility. In our passing versatility stat, he is a C. In every one of our other playmaking stats, he is an A or an A minus. So, like he's he's more of a he makes uh, a simple read really well. Yeah, yeah. So that can work, and and I wouldn't like with no scheme, no structure around it. It's going to work work like a little bit less, but there's something there. I think his finishing ability is is real, even though his size isn't fantastic. His three point shooting ability this year has been a little bit down, but he's still shooting like thirty six percent. Um, in the past, he's been like okay to, to decent, and, and he's generally had pretty high three-point shot quality. So he can, he can play off ball as a shooter. On ball, he's been in the top 2% of the entire league in terms of our stable 
uh, pick and roll ball handler efficiency the past two seasons. And the two years prior to that, he was in the low 90th percentile. So he's recently been an elite pick and roll ball handler. Great craft, really smart, good at making reads. Um, offensively, like, yeah, I think he's a starting caliber guy. Now, defensively is where he's not good, but he's also not like Trey Young bad. Like he's he's just limited physically, but I, I think from a processing the game standpoint, mental side, he's decent. Uh, but like as, as a point of attack defender, which is how he's been used this year, he's like a, a D plus on ball perimeter defensive grade for us, which is awful for a guard. That is, that's horrendous. Um, he's decent as like an off ball chaser. He can get around ball screens. All right. So it, I don't know. He rotates. Okay. His, his defensive impact this season has been in like the D grade range. So it's not going to kill you. And it's, it's good enough that overall his total impact is still pretty positive. Still at an 80, uh, 84th percentile, a minus grade for us because his offense is that good. Um, but he will be weaker on the defensive side. So I can see him being someone that like Tibbs doesn't want to play as much because, because the defense isn't there. And ideally I think you do play him more in like a shooting guard chaser kind of defensive role where he's a little bit more off ball. Um, okay. I, I so if you have if you have like a good point of attack defender though, like that you would feel comfortable playing him as somebody who can defend off ball. Yeah, yeah. Like if you if you can have a guy offensively to play alongside him, that's a good off ball player that defensively can play point of attack. I, I think he can fit into that backcourt just fine. Yep. Uh, I'm also just curious. Like he's struggled previously in the playoffs. How concerning would that be for you, or do you feel like the leap he's made now? I mean, we'll see. Obviously, they look like they're going to be almost certainly a playoff team, so we'll see how it goes. But um, do you feel like the level he's at now, that would be less of a concern moving forward? Um, so to your earlier point, a, way, a while back when we were talking about playoff basketball devolving into iso ball a bit, that's yeah. where his defense is going to be picked on a bit more. And so mm-hmm. from that standpoint, even if his offense is okay, defensively he's going to be more of a liability than he normally is because they're going to hunt switches against him. Mm-hmm. Um, let me pull up what I have on his pick and roll ball handling offense, because what we've generally seen with guys who struggle in the playoffs that like have a, a real big drop off in their game as, as ball handlers is they're good against like drop coverage. But then when they start seeing other coverages, like when they're trapped or when they're switching or when defenses are at the level of the screen with their big, then they just, you know, really drop off. And looking at his data, he's been good against drop. He's been decent this year against switching. Um, he's been good this year against uh, the defenses running soft hedges. If you try to go under screens, he's going to torch you. So I, at least from this season's data, he profiles as someone that shouldn't see a big drop off with their pick and roll game come playoff time. So that to me would be pretty encouraging as well. So if you can withstand the defense and there are things you can do defensively schematically to like mm-hmm. send extra help uh, and, and try to help support a weaker uh, defender like him, I, I, I still think he can work decently in the playoffs. And we've certainly seen poor guard defenders like be fine in the playoffs. Right. Um, right. So, so yes and no, but I, I, I feel good about the offense being able to kind of hold up for him. Um, yeah, so while, while I have you here, uh, I am curious to get your thoughts on this one. It was one of the bigger trades, uh, obviously, at the deadline, maybe in a while. What did you think of the Sabonis for Halliburton trade? 
I thought it was. I mean, I really like Halliburton. Sabonis is also very, very good. Uh, I yeah. was surprised to see which guard the Kings decided to build around. Um, I think that to me was the most surprising part. I, I figured, I figured Fox was going to be on the move. I figured Sabonis was going to be on the move. Maybe not in the same deal, but I love the Sabonis fit with the Kings. He's such an underrated passer and playmaker mm-hmm. that. Like he just opens up so much. Anytime you have a guard who's going to be facing any of those aggressive hedges and ball screens, you want to have a big man that can't. You can just give the ball to in the short roll, and they can pick a defense apart. And Sabonis is able to do that a decent bit. So he is a post scorer, beating up on switches, um, and and as a short roll guy, makes a lot of sense. So I'm I think the Kings got a really good piece in him, but the the Pacers, especially with them, just kind of like turning the page and right. looking a bit more towards the future. I think this trade made a lot of sense for them as well. Like, I really like Halliburton. He's one of the few guys in the league that, like, is at his caliber of perimeter shooting, finishing, and playmaking. Like, he's in, a, in fairly elite company. He still has plenty of room for for growth, but he has, for his age, really, really good skills. And I think the Pacers have a really good player there with him. And now that they've kept Turner, they suddenly just structurally make a lot more sense with, with Turner just playing center um, rather than... Sabonis and Turner like trying to play together so <laughs> their their roster just makes way more sense now so I actually personally I like this on both sides and I think people may be underrating one or both of those players but I think both ended up I, I think both teams are better for for this trade yeah and I, I thought the other thing too and like to your point about Fox and Halliburton like they had to pick one I think they like looked around the league the Fox market was not hot, right? I don't think there was a huge appetite for De'Aaron Fox anywhere. At least not in terms of like you weren't going to get you weren't going to get comp- the bonus. Yeah, you were, and you were. Yeah, you probably weren't going to get a treasure trove of assets either. Like yeah. you were probably going to get a couple of firsts, maybe. And um, you know, I think I think he was in a tough spot because you know McNair's been there now. This was his. He's in his second year. He had not made any big decisions really. Like the biggest decision he had made was not bringing back Bogdanovich, which he got killed for, but I actually thought was a completely fine decision. Um, but I think, like, at some point, you have to make a move. Like, you have to change your roster, and you just have to go forward. Um, I think that Davion Mitchell had started to look really good the past month, so I think they thought, okay, maybe that can help. If we lose Halliburton, who we know is going to be a really good player, we still have this kid who we think is also going to be a really good player um, in his own right. And I think like at times, like, you know, you have to make a choice. Like, do we want to just get a bad package back for Fox or are we better off keeping him as flawed as he is still a super talent, uh, especially like as a dribble drive player. And if we can get back an all-star front court player and unload our bad money in the process, like, is that worth giving up a player who I don't think they like? I hundred percent do not believe they traded Halliburton because they were like concerned about him in any way long term. Mm-hmm. I think they traded Halliburton because he was the best piece they could trade to get back a value that made sense for them to potentially change the future of the franchise. Whereas if they, you know, if you just keep it the same, like what are you doing? You're not doing anything. We know this group doesn't work, right? Like yeah. you know the Davion, like Davion Mitchell, bless his heart, he's six foot tall. He's not going to be able to. He cannot cover up for the defensive flaws of Darren Fox and Tyrese Halliburton. Like it's just not possible. And I think like it hurts because you're giving up such a nice young player, but you know, GMs get paid to not be sentimental and 
to be ruthless to a degree. Like you have to be cold and calculated and make the right moves um, and, and be willing to take risks. And I think he took a big risk. Like there's no question about it. You trade out a second year guard, putting up the numbers Halliburton is you're taking a big, big, big rig, big, big risk. And um, I, I just, I think I, I like in some ways I just kind of like respect the move where it's like, it's the easy move is to not do anything, right? And be like, well, you know, nothing came up and we couldn't do anything. I think the hard move is to take that chance. And um, we'll see if it works out for them or not. But I'm like, I, I'm pretty fascinated to watch them. They've been really fun to watch um, since that trade. Uh, defensively, they still have a lot of issues, but like you can kind of see the vision, right? Between Sabonis and Fox, like, because Fox isn't really the greatest playmaker, in my opinion, at least in terms of feel and, and stuff like that. But playing him, in now a position where you can really unleash him as an off ball cutter and stuff like that off of Sabonis and really let him thrive as a scorer. Um, and you're still, you know, you've diversified now your playmaking from two different areas of the court, right? Like two different areas of your team. I think it's like a really fascinating trade. I, I'm really excited to like, see how it works out for them and for the Pacers moving forward. Yeah. I, I think the real winner is, is us. Cause both of these teams are like way more fun to watch now. I, I enjoy the fit. It was, it's like in fantasy football, like trading as a team with like too many running backs, like to the point that like, you know, I've got good running backs on my bench, but I need wide receivers with a team having the opposite mm-hmm. problem with, with too many wide receivers, just like both teams make more sense. Now the structure, the vision, like it's easier to get behind what they have because there's no longer that lingering like, hey, we know this doesn't work. At some point, somebody needs to be traded. It's now, okay, these pieces fit together. Let's build around it and like let's grow and, and see what we can do with this. And yeah. and I'm enjoying, like you said, like uh, being able to supplement the Kings offense from a playmaking standpoint without just having it all be on Fox is really helpful. I just, I, I love it in so many different ways. I think it, it was... I don't know. I'd really enjoy it. I think it was a smart trade. And like you said, a, a good ruthless ruthless one. It can't be every time like, oh, this guy's a rising young player. Therefore, he's untouchable. Like nobody should be untouchable. Yeah, we can't um, We can't do the Danny Ainge thing for 30 teams, right? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Like you're the Kings. You now make way more sense. And like maybe in the offseason, you make a couple good moves and you're in a position to be dangerous next year. Maybe. Yeah. I don't know. But it's, Well, it's also like it also just simplifies what they need to do, right? Like. Yeah you need to get wings that can shoot and you need to get a big man that can protect Sabonis. And not even like, you know, I actually been thinking about this. Like when I watch Sabonis, like I don't think he's a bad defender. I think he has limitations as a defender. And so figuring out like who is the guy that makes the most sense for him? Like the obsession has been getting a stretch five, a stretch five, like find a stretch five. And I think that's like almost limiting to look at him in that sense. Like I, I don't know if it will work, but, and I don't, it's very hard to find these type of players, but like somebody like Jared Vanderbilt, who is not a traditional five, mm-hmm. but I mean, obviously the fact that Vanderbilt can't shoot would be a problem with Sabonis, but like finding that type of rangy, bigger wing type that can cover up and be a help defender from the weak side and crash down, and protect the rim that way. Um, I'd like, that is actually what I think they should try to be looking for. I don't know who that player is, but like, I just think it, it, it opens up a lot of possibilities for them when building out the team now. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and yeah, like I, I, I'm pretty excited to see it. And like, I, you know, the healed thing I want, they played the Knicks like probably two weeks before the deadline, like buddy healed. That guy was so done with Sacramento this year. Like the shots he was putting up were fucking absurd. Like I know he's a crazy shooter as is, but he was just, you know, 
you're out there like running. He's like coming off the pin down, just chucking it without looking at the rim. You're like, what are you doing, man? This is terrible. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, um, it was a good move for everybody, I think. The players, yeah. the teams, the fans, the third party fans. Yeah. They, and maybe Buddy Hield can be a Laker this year, maybe. Yeah, somehow. maybe. <laughs> All right, Tim, thanks so much for coming on, man. Uh, plug anything that you'd like to plug and uh, let the people know where they can find you. Yeah, of course. Uh, thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. I enjoy, always enjoy coming on and, and chatting. And for, I don't know, it, it was interesting how the Lakers and the Knicks are in similar positions from a coaching angst standpoint in a lot of the same yeah, ways. So yeah. that was that was interesting. Uh, if you'd like to follow me and hear, it, it is a lot of Lakers analysis, but you know, just more general NBA stuff as well. You can find me on Twitter at uh, Tim underscore NBA or just look up Grant Just Make Basketball. Um, I run a website called Basketball Index. We sell a lot of really cool data. We actually have a lot of free good stuff that's available and we're adding to that in like the next two or three days. But we also have some really good premium stuff for like five bucks a month. Um, We really need to adjust that price because it hasn't changed in years, even though we've like tripled what we offer with it. But you can find really, really cool stuff uh, analyzing players, analyzing teams. Um, Our player profiles have like hundreds and hundreds of stats for every player in the same place contextualized with letter grades and percentiles. Um, we have that lineups app I was talking about. We've got all sorts of different things where to, just to help you analyze the game, see the game at different levels. If you're writing a podcast or recording a podcast, writing an article and want to like just quickly do some analysis or grab a screenshot, we've got great stuff for that. Um, we also are just launching a scheme course, uh, just kind of like the janky version where once every other week I do like a session where we walk through a couple topics and I might have like a little quiz involved and there are di- there's diagramming and there's it's, it's fun. The content's good. We are going through a cycle of that while at the same time in the back, you know, on the back end of things saying, all right, like how do we cut these videos down? How do we polish this a bit? How do we put up, you know, more of a structured uh, curriculum on, on the site itself. But at least for now you can go check that out. Um, I tweet out that link every now and then. I think it's like BBI scheme team. It's like bit.ly bit slash BBI scheme team, I think is what it is. Um, mm-hmm. If you're interested, just, just DM me. My DMs are open and I can send you more info on that. But we've got folks in there that Lakers fans are not. They are, and it's not Lakers specific, but um, they're in there and like people are now like, hey, 2K isn't fun for me every more, anymore because, you know, the game's too easy. And I'm like, you're welcome slash i'm sorry i'm like if you can if you're gonna learn it's not just basics like you will learn the basics but we're gonna really dig into the like high level advanced stuff to the point that if you're a coach it should be value add for you if you are in the media or just a fan and want to learn more you're gonna learn everything you could ever possibly want to know and be able to see the game at a whole different level and like recognize oh this is the play that they're running or here's the the off ball rotation that was missed or okay they're running this coverage here's how we beat that coverage things like that um, so if you want to check that out, reach out to me on Twitter and I can send you the info. Uh, you guys don't want to listen to my Lakers podcast, so I won't, I won't <laughs> pump that out. But if you have any <laughs> Lakers friends, I suppose, send them over to the Lakers exceptionalism pod or on Twitter, it's at Lakers sex pod, um, or Lakers X pod. We, we tried to make exceptionalism shorter, but it turned out to just end up being Lakers sex pod. If you change where the capitalization <laughs> is. So, uh, we also have a fun discord, which again, you probably don't want to be part of, but if you have Lakers friends, let them know. Uh, the Laker Sex Mafia, where we, again, commiserate with the awful season, but then also, you know, do crazy things like, 
you know, work sources and, and try to meddle in things in the back end and try to, you know, hack some narratives and plant some seeds and fix try the to Lakers. Push, try to, we try to fix the <laughs> Lakers the best we can. Um, so <laughs> they I, I got to ask you, I got to ask you since you're here, I got to ask you is part of fixing the Lakers. How, how often do you get AD trade scenarios? Not all that often. I, I understand <laughs> why, and he's just been so, so injured that it's, I mean, did you see what happened to, like, did you see the video of what happened recently? Like, yeah. I am, I am actually, like, really impressed his leg is not broken, or his ankle's not broken. Like, he, yeah. but, but still, he's just constantly injured. So, I get it, but I don't see that being the direction that they're even considering going. And, and he was, him and LeBron are the two guys that they didn't try to trade. They tried to trade, like, everyone else these past couple weeks. Um, so would like, you, would you consider trading him? I do. Yeah. Nobody's untouchable, but I don't know that you're going to get an offer that makes sense, but I, mm. I don't know. It's it, realistically. So in 2k, yes, I would realistically, <laughs> realistically, like that's one of those that like, if it gets out that you're shopping AD, like that's not a good look. Um, right. That's why they were like covertly trying to shop Russ for a while. So I'd, I'd probably just hang tight. Got you. Um, all right. Well, Tim, thank you so much for coming on. I have nothing to plug other than uh, the various podcasts. I'll plug all the great writing that's happening at the Strickland. Despite all of the Knicks sucking, our writing is still winning the day. Um, so check all that out um, and check out our podcasts. Uh, obviously, this one, Prez has Draft Strickland, the mailbags, all that shit is out there. Um, so I hope everybody has a great week, and I'll see everybody on Friday.